Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk Make Podcasts. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And we neither walked nor run. Ran. It's cold. I was late, so I don't know why I feel the need to confess that on this podcast, but I do. So if we're gonna like um, lamely brag about it when we actually do mean manage to take a slow jog, <laughs> I feel like we should. Confess when we don't. Correct. Uh, so what's astonishing you? What's astonishing me? Well, you know, today is my least favorite day of the year. <laughs> okay. It's Halloween. Um, I have a deep, deep dislike for Halloween. Uh, it is the day before All Saints Day, All Hallows Eve, Halloween, um, the evening before uh, we celebrate the saints of God. And I keep coming back to the the why I dislike Halloween. And I, these days, the primary reason I dislike Halloween, because it is a reminder to me that um, in the West, especially in Western Christianity, we so easily quickly baptize European paganism, but when it comes to other cultures, well, that's voodoo, that's whatever, it's evil. Um, and I know, well, most people know that Halloween comes from, um, I think, um, pagan Celtic practices, yeah. And so we easily incorporate those. When it's Christmas, we have no problem with trees and mistletoe and blah, right? Um, and so it is, it is a reminder for me, again, of otherness, of um, um, Eurocentrality. So that's in large measure why I shy away from Halloween. Uh, my family does as well. We... <laughs> My child last night at the dinner table asked, now, now why, why are we like this again? And uh, here's what's astonishing me in all this is uh, I'm reminded, like, on this day when our family, my wife and I and my child, we have this practice of we, we go out to dinner on Halloween night. And by the way... Halloween night is a fantastic time to go to a restaurant because they're usually pretty clear and the servers are very happy to see you. That aside, uh, I'm astonished by the reminder that you, you really do create a culture within your family. You, you, like the three of us, we are, we are odd in our neighborhood. We, we have us... We know that we're the only family. We sense that we're the only family that is where we are on Halloween. And in some way, that is discomforting. It's not, you know, you don't want to be on the outside. But on the other hand, I like it. I like the sense of it's it's us three. It's the three of us. We shape this culture. We we are very intentional about who we are in our house. We both shape a culture and it shapes us. And I don't know what my 
son is going to do when he's 18, 19, 20, he may totally reject our thinking on this and many other things. But I know that we are shaping him, hopefully, for good. Well, I think, um, you know, you and I, we, we so rarely disagree about anything. And this is yeah. one of the things that, I mean, we're just not, I mean, on the same page. And that is really okay, because I think primarily, I think we would both agree that Halloween is kind of an adiaphron. I mean, it's a place where people of faith can just see things differently. Sure. And um, I, I think, I mean, I listen to you and I just, whatever, I, I I, not that anyone you needs my... You whatever me? No, I was going to say, I'm, I'm picking my words carefully because it's not like anyone needs my approval or co-signing on on how you approach things. I just, I, I hear... You see it in a different way. Well, I just hear what you're saying is like Halloween is another sign of colonialism, right? And just, and, and so, I, I agreed, right? I mean, the, the fact that we can see value in certain cultures and that we approach other cultures with fear and superiority is really heartbreaking. And so I, you know, honor that. I, I think for me, Halloween um, is just this idea where it's a day that people are creative and we we sort of thumb our noses at the things we fear and we go out into our neighborhoods and we meet our neighbors and knock on doors. Like it's just such a, to me, there's just such a beautiful, defiantly Christian way to embrace that. And um, I think what I, what I think is important is that in the um, community of faith, we, we, I mean, it's just a place where we all get to make a theological decision. And that's, that, and that's really a beautiful thing. And being able to just understand and really honor and respect that it, it can, it can and should look different for all of us. That unity doesn't mean uniformity. Um, cause there are things that I dislike. I, I dislike some of the, um, I, I, like the, the way that it tends towards like, uh, glamorizing gore. I don't love, and I, and I don't love just thinking about the, um, the amount of money. It's the, it's the holiday that is the second most spending holiday. And I think in a, in a world of extreme poverty, you know, it has, it can have kind of a let the meat cake, um, idea of, uh, of saying like, I'm going to buy this Halloween costume, sorry for my dog. Um, while there are people who don't have enough, um, food to survive or dying of preventable diseases. Um, but I, I do really think, um, it's, it, and I dislike the idea of churches encouraging believers to have alternatives that are essentially the exact same thing, but are um, make sure that Christians don't interact with anyone who's not already a Christian. Like I, I don't, I don't love that, and I don't love the idea that there would be some parts of the body of Christ where we would teach people that um, there's some demonic power in a holiday, which which we both believe is not true, at least not in the way that people express that and that we would sort people into worthy and unworthy based on how they interact with this holiday. So I think it's just important that to me that we can, I mean, just like that idea of that question that Matthew's asking around the table is such a holy question for us as, as people and as families to say like, not just, okay, how do I get in line? How do I behave to win your approval or win my belonging? But to be able to ask that question of like, no, what, but why, <laughs> like, what is our, what are our values 
that we're expressing in this decision and in this choice. And I think that's really beautiful and important. And I want my kids, I want my kids to know why we do participate and to know why you don't and to be able to understand that there's there's deep beauty and validity in both of those choices. So yeah, yeah my wife Han um, likened it to that place uh, where the Apostle Paul discusses um, whether or not Christians should eat meat sacrificed right. to idols. Like if you do, that's fine. Idols are right. nothing. Um, but if if it uh, harms your conscience, then, then don't, don't do, do it, it, and it's okay. Right. right. And I do think I read a really beautiful essay by a teacher who was talking about how at the beginning of the year she just part of her like get to know you stuff for the parents is to say to parents, hey, are there any holidays your family doesn't celebrate? Um, and then she just tries to say like, hey, if we have a class where everyone in the class celebrates Halloween, we'll do a Halloween party. But if we don't then we'll do a fall party so that every kid can show up and participate fully. And I just think it's really important in a healthy community. You you make space for one another's consciences, and you don't want to create a space where any any person, let alone a child, feels you know shamed or disconnected in showing up as their, their real self. So, look, I just think it's really beautiful that we can model this friendship across the pro and anti-Halloween divide. There you go. So what's astonishing you? Uh, we had a really beautiful worship service on Sunday that um, a lot of people in the congregation came together to conceive. Um, so we celebrated All Saints Day on Sunday, which I think technically, according to those who declare themselves to have ultimate authority, Halloween, I'm sorry, All Saints Day is supposed to be celebrated on the first Sunday after November 1st, and we didn't do that. <laughs> um, but I do love, uh, when well, we don't do it every year, but I do love, the, um, you know, taking a, a moment to gather together in worship and just acknowledge the, the, the separation from the beloved ones, the saints in Christ who are you know, with us eternally and are with us in the worshiping community, but are separated um, from us on life. And like, just to bring a place for people to bring their grief and acknowledge it and name it and their mourning and speak names that, um, you know, are in danger of, of not being spoken anymore. I just think it's really beautiful. And I love um, that the joy of Christ doesn't require numbing or denying um, grief and pain. It allows us to embrace it more fully. Um, so um, we um, have a, a woman in our congregation who's a, um, who is many things, and among them an, um, an artist who, who does a lot of weaving and fiber art. And so um, we had this um, strips of cloth that we had affixed to the ridge of the pews and then invited everybody in a moment in worship to take um, crayons because they wouldn't bleed through and hurt the, <laughs> you think I don't test these things, hurt the wood and, and write the names of the people they're remembering and giving thanks to God for the, for their lives and, and the people they're mourning and just, you know, and then, um, kind of had to work together in the pews cause the fabric was slow. These things are awkward, right? <laughs> like, you know, you have to sort of hold the, the cloth for one another and write the names down and, um, and then bring, this is, you know, they're doing when the saints come marching in. And then once everyone has had a chance to write, you, you know, detach these cloths and like bring them up to the front of the sanctuary and put them in this basket. And then um, during the sermon, um, Stephanie 
um, had prepared sort of a, a, a warp, I think is the term. Um, so like you prepare the weaving and then she was weaving these pieces of cloth with the names wow. into um, into the piece during the sermon. And we're just talking about like this is this is the promise of resurrection that Jesus is the first fruits and that we are included in the resurrection promise and that that you know and it was really lovely to me um just this visual proclamation this embodied proclamation because depending on where you were sitting in the sanctuary like you you maybe could see or not see like how, what she was weaving and at times she would like hold it up to look like look and check how things were going and so you catch a glimpse of it but just depended on your proximity you you would know what was happening or not and you could see it or not and some people couldn't see it they just had to hear me say like I see it and I felt like it's just such a um as we move through life hopefully I mean a great blessing and privilege is that you grow more and more accustomed to grief like it becomes more and more a part of your life if you are fortunate enough to not have experienced death um, as a as a child or a young person, which is obviously not everyone's experience. And I, I think, you know, to be able to know that in some seasons, it's hard to see the promise. Like it's hard to see how loss and grief and just senseless. I mean, I, I think all death is senseless. And, and like there are some seasons where you, you, you can know and feel that the goodness of God is triumphant and the goodness of God is big enough to include all of these things and to believe the promise that every tear will be wiped away and there'll be no more suffering and no more death and no more mourning. And then in other seasons, you just can't see it and you can't feel it. And you, you depend upon, um, the, the wisdom of, and communion of the body of Christ, like just holding you and believing those promises for you. And I just, um, it was just really profound for me, um, as just as a human and and then as a pastor I'm so grateful for a congregation that is just looking for new ways to grow deeper into the faith and and really if if I mean I think can understand or can make space for the idea that like we have to try new things we have to try new ways to incorporate that reality and and you know you, you walk into church and there's like pieces of cloth washi tape to the pews and people aren't like we, you know but are just like well something's gonna happen and and it may work and it may not work and it may end up being something that's profoundly beautiful and meaningful to me or it may not it might be for my neighbors or it might be just a way that we're bearing witness to the fact that we if we're walking by faith, then we have to be a community where it's okay to try faithful things and take faithful risks, even if we don't know 100% for sure um, what's going to happen. And I think to be a part of, and I'm grateful to be a part of a church where the culture is to give people the benefit of the doubt. And so instead of walking around and looking for like, oh, this person annoys me and you know, what's, what have they done? What stupid thing are they doing now? Or what, you know, that people show up and like are, are ready to show up with the possibility of like, I'm going to presume that this is meaning filled and faithful and appropriate. I'm going to presume that until I learn otherwise. And I, you know, that's just not always the case in Christian communities. Cause I think we can become so overwhelmed by anxiety 
and scarcity and this feeling like we have to protect the faith and protect Jesus and like stop anything bad from happening that it can make us view anything new with suspicion um, instead of having a real sense of the triumph of the goodness of God that says like, hey, we're we're free and we're redeemed and God is doing good things. And so what is an unfamiliar and in front of me, it it is just as likely to be good as not. And, you know, so I just appreciate just being in a high trust community and being in a place where things don't have to be perfect all the time. Um, so that was... Well, the Grove wasn't the only church on Sunday that observed um, All Saints Day. We did as well, uh, a, w- a week early, uh, according to the uh, authorities. Uh, we wrote the names of all the members of our church family who died last year. Uh, we wrote their names on um, ribbon and hung them on a large cross in the front of the sanctuary. And um, we also had an opportunity to... Um, place the ashes of one of our sisters in the columbarium behind um, the the worship uh, space, the sanctuary building uh, at Dorada Church. And uh, this woman, Gladys, um, she died more than a month ago, and the primary member of her family who was looking after her, a nephew in another state, he died before she did and so no one knew we were contacted by the funeral home and um, she left uh, a note saying uh, that she did not want any kind of funeral service and um, three members of her family died last year and so there was really not um, not a lot of people who remembered her Um, just a couple of people in the congregation but we were not going to intern her ashes without some acknowledgement of her life. And uh, that was really meaningful um, mm-hmm. to a lot of people. And I, I had some people come up to me after that ceremony um, to say just thank you for doing that. Yeah. Um, that was really meaningful. Uh, during the preaching time, we asked the question, you know, what does it mean to be a saint? Uh, Mm Because that's a word that we tend to associate with the Roman Catholics. Mm -hmm. And and then when we do use it, it's almost always about someone has performed some extraordinary act or lived some extraordinary life Mm -hmm. and have reached some some level of Christianity that's beyond our Mm -hmm. ordinary Christian Mm -hmm. status and... Um, I, it was a good reminder for us that sainthood is not about behavior. Right, or saint, achievements. Or achievements. That sainthood is about position. Uh, Paul says in Philippians 4, greet the saints in Christ. And it's that in Christ. Um, we looked at uh, that place where Jesus healed a leper. A leper called out to Jesus for healing. And of course, in that day, uh, one was not to touch a leper because you Mm -hmm. would become unclean, get the disease. But Jesus is so holy that he touches Mm -hmm. lepers. And not not only does he 
he, he does not become unclean. He makes them clean. Right. And in the same way, Jesus, uh, when he touches sinners, he makes us holy. He makes us saints. And yeah. A saint is one who is sanctified. Yeah. And, and I think we have this sort of works righteousness, consumer understanding of sainthood being like the one who's the elite you know, has made a you know a moral achievement has has a has climbed the moral Mount Everest and earned sanctity, and that's just not the revelation of the gospel. A saint is one who is sanctified, made holy by the love of Jesus, and so we we can and should name you know that and and life on this earth has been sanctified by the incarnation of Jesus, which is why. The life of Gladys, who died, you know, must be centered, must be acknowledged, Absolutely. must be celebrated. We like we we proclaim that the sanctity of human life. And I, um, you know, I am one who who just thinks it's really important on on both sides of the culture war. If you talk about the sanctity of life in different settings, whether it's when it comes to abortion or capital punishment, I mean, someone will say, oh, but not that life. And, and to be, to, you know, to follow after Jesus is to say, no, the sanctity of life is, um, is, is no longer up for debate. And it's not certain lives that are more um, worthy or less worthy. It's the sanctity of life. And that, um, you know, that's, I think to celebrate All Saints Day again and again, like we don't get over the deaths of those we love and loving humans should give us an insight into the divine heart for humanity and to know that the culmination of the story is is every tear being being wiped away and knowing that that's where we're heading is what gives us the moral courage and the freedom to say, this life is sacred, and I and I have to stand with it and acknowledge it. Yeah, the sermon title I used on Sunday was um, "So Hard to Be a Saint?" Question mark. Yeah. So there's this. Um, you and your titles, well, man. I, I love sermon titles. What what, what says <laughs> <laughs> traditional church more than? <laughs> You're speechless. You, I'm you, hating on you. Your time. you I don't hating? know. You, hated, you, on, hating you on... hated on Halloween first, so I'm just going to say <laughs> so I anyway, hate sermon titles. What I was saying was because I can't make them. My sermon title was So Hard to Be a Saint? Question mark. Because on the one hand, it's easy to become a saint, it is the gift of God through Jesus Christ. And we're called to live out who we are. That's that's where it gets hard, right? And I think to be able to say no, now that I have been sanctified in Christ, I live in Christ, and so I don't oh. just say, "Great, glad I don't have to worry about hell anymore." I'm now morally in, you know, not I can do culpable I for anything. Yeah. I can do whatever I want, and, and you know, finding that living within that holy tension of I am free and I don't have to live in fear, and also every step and every choice I make matters eternally because I have a chance to embody the love and life of Christ or not. I said on Sunday that everyone should get up on Monday morning, look in the mirror and say, I am a saint of God, mm -hmm. and then go out into the world mm -hmm. to live that way. Yeah. Yeah. 
So what are you thinking about? I am thinking about, um, I just think this is something we need to talk a lot about. There was an election in the House of Representatives last week, and a man named Michael Johnson, who's a representative from Louisiana, I think is he from Louisiana, Alabama? I don't know. Kind of the running joke is that no one knows who this guy is. Um, and uh, but, but what is um, true about him is that he um, is a person of, of he's a Christian, a uh, person of faith, and his understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that America is a Christian nation, and he believes um, that he was um, called and placed by God in a position of power in order to make America a more Christian nation. Um, and he, so he is, and, and I don't think that he would be offended or dispute this at all. I mean, he is a Christian nationalist and, um, I, there's a, there's a quote that he has, um, he was doing an interview and he said, over the last 60 or 70 years, our generation has been convinced that there is a separation of church and state. Most people think that that is part of the constitution, but it's not. In 2022, this is from a Time Magazine article, he stated the founders wanted to protect the church from an encroaching state, not the other way around. Um, so they, uh, Johnson um, wants um, the to protect the Christ, Judeo-Christian roots of the United States that the secular forces are chipping away. And so I just think it's important on a podcast like this that we like uh, return in an ongoing conversation to like what is Christian nationalism and why is it problematic and how do you talk uh, when someone says like well you're a christian don't you want this to be a christian nation and i think it's really important for i mean i'll just say what i believe categorically which is i want to share the gospel of jesus christ um with everyone and i want to um just share the the treasure that i found i i, I want to in a life-giving, holy, self-effacing way. I want to be about evangelism, sharing the good news. Um, and I, I think it's really important, though, to say um, that a lot of how those terms get represented in mass market Christianity is not, is not the way I would use those words. Um, and particularly this idea that the way to make America a Christian nation is to, um, you know, overtake one of the seven mountains of government and then essentially make laws that say it's now illegal to behave in a way that I consider immoral as a Christian. And so, um, Mike Johnson has, is a, you know, believes that, um, to be homosexual is an abomination and is unnatural and is um, has sponsored or been supportive of legislation outlawing um, gay sex and certainly once and and so I think you know his his thinking is look as I read the Bible this is a sin and so for the way for me to love my neighbor is to make it um, more um, danger like to to erect more barriers and penalties and consequences against that sin and therefore I'll help people say oh well I don't want to do this because I don't want to go to jail and so I can understand that you know given his theology you can say by passing these laws I am loving my neighbor because I am I am increasing the um the I I am making it less easy for them to commit the sin and I'm saving them from themselves um but I I think, I mean, A, that, that's not how I read scripture. That's not my understanding of human sexuality. And we've talked in other places about how, you know, the, the patriarchal understanding of human sexuality, which I think Jesus came to 
disrupt and disturb and destroy is is ironically now being reinforced on the Christian tradition. So read, you know, Jesus and John Wayne. Um, but but I think this idea that in secular America, we think that the American government is the most powerful force there is. And so we go, okay, well, if we want to serve Jesus, what we need to do is get a hold of that federal power, that secular power, that government power, and then we can use that power um, for Jesus. And we can make it essentially, you know, illegal um, to do things that are unchristian in our view. And I think what's important for for me is to say, you know, Jesus very clearly, it, had Jesus wanted to lead a rebellion and overtake the powerful secular government of this day, he, he could have done it, right? Like he could have made himself Caesar, Jesus, uh, Satan offered him that ability in the desert. That was one of the temptations. I'll make you um, the ruler over all the kingdoms. And Jesus says, no, that's not my way. And at the end of his life on the cross, and said, you know, if you're all powerful, come down. And he says, if I wanted, don't you think I could have just battalions and battalions of angel armies come here and avenge me and take power and control? Like I am, Jesus was not, he was a revolutionary, but not a military revolutionary. And and we still just don't understand that as Christians. We think that because we're Christians, we ought to have human power, the power to punish, the power to make war, the power to threaten, the power to coerce. And and that's not the power of God and it's not our power. And so I think just on the face of it, it's it is a um it's a mis it's a tragic misunderstanding of the gospel um to to say Christians are called to take control of secular government and then impose Christianity or limit other faiths. But I also just think that the second question that nobody asks, like when Mike Johnson says, okay, you know, we, the constitution only meant to protect the church from the state, not to stop the church from influencing the state. And I think like, see, this is, this is the thing. Everybody says like, I want prayer back in school. But then the question is, whose prayer? Like whose prayer do you want back in school? Because everyone assumes like, well, my prayer, prayer. So I will want, you know, when we put prayer back in school, the people who pray in Jesus's name will pray in Jesus's name in a way that I agree with and I like. And, and you know, part of the story of people coming to this country, part not the whole, but part of the story of people coming to this country um, to find refuge was these are Christians who were being run out of a Christian nationalist government that said, in the name of Jesus, you must pray like this, you must talk like this, you must live like this. And people were saying, well, th that's not how my conscience reads the gospel. I don't want the governor of my hamlet telling me what the gospel means. I want the Holy Spirit and my own understanding of scripture to be able to lead me in the practice of living out my life. So just, I think as a person who takes faith very, very, very seriously, I want it out. You know, I do not want a Christian nationalist government, even if it's someone who I happen to theologically agree with, because I, we need freedom of conscience in order to be able to live out the gospel instead of being, um, you know, really disempowered by people who take the power of the gospel and use it for whatever end they they might. So I just think, you know, this is the problem. Like Mike Johnson 
I keep thinking his name is Michael Jackson, but it's not Michael Johnson. Um, you know, he wants a, a Christian national government, but he does not want a Christian national government by my theology, and I don't want one by his. So you you have to just right from the very beginning say it's not just about being a Christian nation. It's about generally the people taking control are saying, I want a conservative, patriarchal, traditional, I would say colonized Christianity to be imposed on everyone. You don't want what you would call a, a godless, liberal, progressive, you know, de-spiritualized, you know, whatever. We, we hurl names back and forth at each other. And, um, you know, I think it's just really important for any Christian to be able to think deeply and seriously about do I think that religious people ought to have political power and, and can the gospel be imposed or can the gospel always be offered as a gift, which means people have to have the freedom to refuse because if you don't have the freedom to refuse, then you don't have the freedom to embrace. And, um, you know, I just think, you know, I also think, and then I'll shut up, but I mean, I think, as I read scripture, tolerance is a core virtue of the gospel. As I read scripture, like a deep reverence for life and the mystery of faith it, it is, is one of the things that the gospel shows me. And that folks who had power, both secular and religious, were out of touch and often directly diabolically opposed to what God in the flesh was trying to do in front of them. And so just having a, a deep understanding of like, I don't want absolute power because I am not worthy of it. I'm not capable of wielding it in a life-giving way. Only God is, which means um, we we need to be limit humans' power, not you know make it autonomous with the power of God. I have a couple of responses. Number one... Um, Christian nationalism tends to highlight some things that they say that they believe are sins, but ignore other things that the Bible clearly says are sins. So, for example, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, says over and over again that there are three groups of people that you just mm -hmm. need to do right by. Right. The widows, the orphans. And the stranger, the foreigners, the mm -hmm. aliens, the, the migrants, people, the, the refugees. people who come from some other place than your land, do right by these people. Don't exploit these powerless people. Thus says the Lord, mm -hmm. right? Let's ignore that stuff, but let's focus on um, personal, quote unquote, personal morality issues. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Uh, number two, Christian nationalism deeply misunderstands spiritual power yes blind to a virtue like humility mm -hmm. would miss and misunderstand father forgive them for they know not what they mm -hmm. do it lacks it it seeks salvation through force Right. I mean, Christian nationalism says God has given me the power to kill my enemies. And the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us the power and the willingness to lay down our lives for our enemies. So there's a place in Philippians 4. As a matter of fact, it's the very end of the letter. And Paul is under house arrest. 
He's waiting to hear whether or not he's going to be executed. And he says, greet all the saints there in Philippi, because he's in Rome. And um, he says, the saints here send greetings, especially those of Caesar's household. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that, that could be like a flyover kind of verse, but it is, it is astonishing that there are members of Caesar's household who confess the name and bend the knee to a Jewish rabbi who was crucified, Mm -hmm. and now people are saying he is risen from the dead, ascended to the throne of heaven, and is Lord of heaven and earth. At the same time, when people in Roman colonies like Philippi refer to Caesar as Lord and Savior. Mm -hmm. So the fact that some people in Caesar's household confess the name of Jesus meant at that time, during that time, that they were rejecting Caesar's way of Mm -hmm. violence and Mm -hmm. force and embracing the way of Jesus, love, self-sacrifice, self-giving, mercy, mercy, right? Christian nationalism misses that and misses true conversion. I get the impulse of any Christian in America saying, listen, we believe that Jesus is the savior of the world and worth surrendering your life to. Mm -hmm. But you don't get that kind of deep, true heart surrender through laws, (laughs) threats, and violence. I mean, the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians because there were some in the Galatian church that said, no, we we need more laws. Mm-hmm. We need to go back to the law of Moses to help people become more Christian. And, right. and Paul's like, no, no, you. this is not about following the law. It's not about following rules. Christian nationalism just totally misses I think, that. yeah, part of it is, is that Christian nationalism is just at its base a shortcut. It's a way of saying, I don't have to be in relationship with people who don't know the goodness of God and don't see the beauty of Jesus. I don't have to go and be in proximity and listen to their stories and try to understand maybe the wounds that powerful Christians have caused to them. I don't need to repair the damage. I can just efficiently and from on high make moral mandates and force compliance with a worldview or at least with behavior that, you know, that is in line with my worldview. And that's just, again, like that's not the power that Jesus displays. Jesus doesn't stay up in the throne room of heaven and shoot moral lightning bolts down and say, now you're spiritually pithed and you have to understand who God is and bend the knee. Like Jesus inefficiently comes down and makes actual relationships that are messy and slow and are are not in organic and and are organic so people take one step forward and then 17 steps back right and and because we just want to 
avoid that and say, no, I'll take political power or I'll support people who take political power so that that becomes my way of evangelism. I don't have to be in proximity with anybody that I'm not already in proximity with and I can stay in my gated community or in my carefully curated community and only interact with people who already share my understanding of who Jesus is and and what it means to follow him. And so I think, you know, it's just, it's a huge, I mean, it, it is literally one of the temptations that Satan offers Jesus. I will give you political power. And Jesus says, no, that's not how my kingdom is coming. And we have to understand that. Now, does that mean that Christians can't be called by God to be politicians? No, like absolutely. People can and should serve in every realm of human life and serve there with their Christian values and worldview. But you have to understand how a Christian is called to view political power. And of anybody in the world, Christians ought to be very wary of humans with the power to kill the power to imprison, the power to torture, and the power to demonize. And we ought to be in government all the time, you know, saying, let's look and see who is the, who are the most powerless people in any given situation, and how do we stand next to them? How do we go to the margins? How do we improve life for those who are not flourishing in a creation of shalom? Um, and I, you know, there's a, there's a book on poverty by America and the author whose name is escaping me, but like his central argument is, look, we just look at the great dis- economic disparity in our country and we kind of shrug our shoulders and are like, well, this is just the way it is. And, and his argument is no, this is the way that our government is set up to protect the wealth of the wealthy, um, instead of centered on how do we, um, bring abundant life to those who are living in poverty, which if you look back to post-World War II, if you look back to the the New Deal, I mean, there was a time when people in government, I mean, the word welfare is literally a translation of the word shalom. Like I, and I keep looking for this somewhere and to try to understand like, where do we get the word welfare to describe like payments and monetary assistance to those who had the least, you know, the poor and powerless in our culture. I got to believe that in the thirties and in the forties, there was enough biblical um, literacy that people really understood. Not only is welfare not contrary to the gospel, it's actually a manifestation of if we live in a Christian nation, that won't be known by what kind of sex we outlaw. It will be known by how much poverty exists in our wealthy, wealthy nation. And when God blesses us with material wealth, are we essentially living like rich fools, like building barns to, uh, you know, save and protect more and more of our resources? Or are we um, adhering to the, to the mandate of the covenant to look for the widow and the orphan read powerless people and the strangers in our midst and, seeing what do we have that would lead to flourishing? How can we create laws and limits on the powerful to protect the life of the powerless? A Christian nationalist is going to ignore Matthew 25. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. That is not the kind of 
serving. Right. And I think ignoring Luke 4, when Jesus comes and grabs the passage from Isaiah and says, this is the year of the Lord, and I have come to pro- proclaim good news to the poor, freedom to the captives, um, liberation to the oppressed. And I think a Christian, na- a truly a Christian nation would say, okay, well, who is poor? Who is held captive? Who is oppressed? And what kinds of policies can we make that would bring life to these groups of people? Like, these are the interests of the people that we need to center. And instead, we have a political system where you know, the amount of money you have buys the amount of speech and power you have. And and I don't see, you know, honestly, if I saw someone showing up and saying, in the name of Christ, I want to disrupt this power, you know, I would, that'd be different for me. But the reality is, if we are really practicing, not the culture war, but but real, humble, risky, mysterious evangelism, I mean, potentially, we could have a nation of people who know Jesus as their Lord and and then the majority will of the of the country really is to say we don't want any children growing up in poverty. We don't want any failing schools. We don't want, you know, infrastructure to um, be, you know, uh, prioritized for those with the most power. We don't want environmental racism. Like we could be a Christian nation, but it would come from the ground up, not from the top down. One other thought. And it's probably the one, it was probably my initial thought when you brought up Christian nationalism. And I've just kind of held it. Am I going to say this? Yes, I am. The thing that strikes me most about Christian nationalism is that I know and I can see clearly because I'm black in America is that Christian nationalism is taking some basic truths about the faith, truths that just about every Christian can say yes to, taking those truths, ignoring a whole lot of others, and wrapping them in white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and when someone who claims to want to make a Christian nation is advocating for policies that benefit themselves and their in-group, then we know that it's not about the gospel. Um, Yeah, and let's just remember, Christians advocated for segregation in the South. Christians advocated for segregated schools. Christians would sometimes leave church on Sunday morning and find, go to the home of a black person who had been accused of something, dragged them out of their homes and lynched them. Those were all people who named the name of Jesus. And mm-hmm. so let's not be fooled by Christian in front of nationalism. Oftentimes, Christian, Christian is a noun. It's a terrible adjective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I think I think in the weeks to come, in the months to come, as we gear up towards another election, there's just going to be lots and lots of conversation about um, Christian nationalism. Go Here's ahead. another thing that strikes me. Part of the problem in terms of discernment for the average Christ- Christian is that we're living in a time of either or. Right. So if you're Christian, that means you must be conservative Republican MAGA, Right. Because the alternative is you are atheist, yeah. godless, 
and there's there's nothing in between and we we've got to highlight that folks need to come out of the either or thinking well, because I, yeah. it will land you in a ditch either way. Right. And I think, I mean, that that's just exactly where I'm going. Like, I think that we're, we're heading into an election season and Christians absolutely need to use every power that we have in order to glorify God and walk out the gospel. And so what that's going to mean is being able to really think deeply about, well, what, what, what do I think when I hear people make make political arguments in the name of Jesus. Um, what are my values? Like not just assuming on either side, because when we have a two-sided political system, not assuming that either side uses the name of Jesus accurately. And also primarily understanding that my, the expression and embodiment of my Christian faith is not in a political ideology. And so there's no, there's no sense, no assumption that a Christian does or doesn't belong to either political party. And it's really important that we understand that, that the reality is that as I read the scripture, the job of a follower of Jesus is to always vote in the best interests of their neighbors, to always vote um, to bring life to those who are most powerless. And and people can have a, have a different um, belief, a different sincere belief about what kind of political policy is going to bring the most life to the most vulnerable people. And we have to be able to continue to, again, say it's not about labeling people either way. It's about saying, let's talk about actually what kinds of choices will we make with the resources that are available to us? And and how can we reasonably expect um, those the consequences of those choices to bear fruit that would be life-giving to the poor and the powerless. And that that's our job as Christians. And, and, you know, on either side of the political debate there, you, you know, there are reasonable Christians can disagree about how to do that. Um, But, but it's really important. And in that disagreement, we should be eager to have conversations, right? Because we should come to the table knowing like, I don't know, I don't know a lot about economic policy. I don't know a lot. Of, I mean, I, I don't know. So I, I want to have a conversation presuming that you really might know something that I don't know. I don't want to do something to look righteous that actually ends up causing great harm, right? I don't want to look like I'm a thing. I want to be a thing. And so to, to say we, we need to have a different way of having discourse because we're followers of Jesus and we need to know that ultimately, no matter who wins or loses this upcoming election as followers of Jesus Christ we will have the same power and ability to glorify Jesus Christ we will have the same moral responsibility to resist things that steal and kill and threaten life and to stand beside those who are vulnerable and to amplify their voices yes and our hope the ultimate hope remains as the book of revelation says the day will come when the trumpet sounds and um, the voice will say the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And so that day is coming. Our job is to um, be co-laborers with Christ, but certainly we don't have to make things happen. We don't have to right. control things. We don't have yeah. to put our hope in our party winning, getting our way. Or our enemies being destroyed. Yes. Like, I think that that's the problem. When you when you hear that promise 
of the kingdom of heaven will be the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of God and Christ. That promise has been so co-opted by, you know, imperialist Christians who said, yeah, that's going to happen after the godless infidels, you know, the, their blood runs in the street. And so, so you hear people claiming that prom- promise and you're like, oh my goodness, like that makes my blood run cold. But to say, actually, the kingdom that's coming is the kingdom of the lamb that was slain, right? It's the kingdom that is led by the only one who is worthy of being a ruler. And that is the one who was crushed by the powers and principalities of evil and violence and enmity and was resurrected by the goodness of God. And and the lamb who was slain does not kill. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's just what you have to understand. Like as a follower of Jesus, we do not have the power to kill. That is not the power that Jesus gives. And yeah, I'm reminded of that place where um, I believe it's, it's James and John. They asked mm-hmm. Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven mm-hmm. upon those people who are not being very nice to us? And Jesus is like, what is wrong right. with you guys? Right. And it's just, I mean, and it's a mystery. And I think I think we need to hold it with reverence. I don't mean to make it seem as though, um, you know, this is simple. It's not simple. It's it's not easy. But I, but I think, you know, Christians have become far too comfortable with military power and with the power of violence, we don't even question it anymore. And we need to, we've been, you know, we, we have had our eyes closed by the culture and we accept as normal things that are abhorrent to the will of God. And I mean, we are people who believe in redemption. And so that's, listen, I heard a preacher, I heard a preacher say that the problem with Christianity in America is that we have a sissified Jesus and we need to come back to an alpha male Jesus and, you know, all of this forgiveness and mercy. And I'm like, holy cow, are you really saying this? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that we, we need to recover the scandalous gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, you know, until, I mean, the the problem, the greatest challenge for the church was when the emperor of Rome became a Christian, and then all of a sudden, people had this opportunity of like we could just we could just tell people to convert and give us their stuff, or we'll kill them, and we can do it in the name of Jesus, and we can say we can justify it by saying we're making converts, and you know you have this tradition of like Roman soldiers being baptized but holding their left hand or right hand in the sword, like holding it out of the water, which I'll say. At least in those first generations, people understood that 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 part of you that killed is not baptized in the death of Jesus Christ. And I don't even think we I, I, I know for sure we don't understand that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I think we have to be done. Did you say what you were thinking about? No, but um, I'm glad we are going a little long on other things because um i i want to hold it until next week because our friend elizabeth bridges sent us a podcast and um, i want to respond to that because it's really really good and um so yeah let's save that for next week and did i just sound like a southerner just then did i say fur instead of four let's save it for next week sorry i yeah i didn't hear it (laughs) far be it for me to criticize you know me. I just keep my opinions to myself. <laughs> all the time. You know, it's um, it's hard. I know. To it's get what people to... say to me all the time. Like, Kate, like, could you just speak up a little like bit? Could you just I, tell us what you think? You're like, just such a mystery. I pray at night, Lord, please help Kate find her voice. Find my voice. Yep. Find yep, her voice. If she could only find her voice, I know. she might do something with yep. her life. Yeah. Yep. 
Yep. All right. Well, enough of that. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Derida Presbyterian, Woo-hoo. you can go to the website, which is deridapres.com. Is that right? Derida Pres? Yes. Okay. I'm just checking. Yeah. I get confused. Um, you can worship with them at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, and you can check out the um, YouTube channel and the podcast on the Podbean website to hear Yolando's messages, which are worth listening to how nice are you i mean it's a true statement i uh and then if you want to find out more about what god is doing god's church the grove you can go to the website which is thegrovecharlotte.org you can check out the youtube channel and the podcast you know wherever you get your podcasts it's the grove church podcast there's a um a green tree with roots there's a lot of groves out there so um the grove church podcast you'll see it the the tree has headphones on it's pretty cute uh you can worship with us at 10 o'clock on sunday mornings um so thank you for listening and we will talk to you next week <laughs>